0: This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of O-Scale Trains Magazine. If you're interested in serious model railroading craftsmanship, then O-Scale Trains Magazine is your source for inspiration.
1: To the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for stopping by. On today's show, wither-goist model railroading. Or, more to the point, if you're a mass-market manufacturer, whither do you go to get your products made? Do you ship production overseas to keep manufacturing costs low and model railroad products cost competitive, Or do you trust in the willingness of your customer base to pay more and keep manufacturing jobs here at home? We're going to explore both points of view on today's show. Later, I'll talk with O-Scale Trains Editor, Joe Averio, who thinks it's time to repatriate some of our model train production. First, though, let's put the issue in context, as Trevor talks to a well-known Central Vermont modeler who used to work in publishing and
0: manufacturing. At one time, the United Kingdom was known as the workshop of the world. Then the United States took over the mantle of Manufacturing Powerhouse, and we all know that today that title belongs to China. This has been great for the hobby in many respects. We have been able to purchase remarkably detailed, ready-to-run models at incredible prices. But there are problems too. For example, a few years ago, China's main factory for model trains changed focus. It decided to work only with the largest companies and boot the others out. Inevitably, modelers are now wondering if manufacturing can be brought back home to North America. Repatriating production would make ready-to-run product a lot more expensive. Over the summer, one manufacturer stated online that such a move could increase the price of his products by 400%, and that would put them out of reach for most hobbyists. Rather than discuss why repatriating manufacturing is impractical, here at the Model Railway Show, we thought it would be interesting to explore how such a move would change how we practice the hobby. Finding the right guest for such a discussion proved tricky, though. I wanted someone with a good grasp of manufacturing issues, but with no current stake in manufacturing so that he could speak freely about it. I also wanted someone with a good overall perspective on the hobby, someone who had worked inside it as a professional observer, if you will, but who was no longer directly involved in that aspect of it. Well, I looked around and I found that person in Marty McGurk. Marty has worked both sides of that fence. He's been a member of the Model Railroader editorial team and on the staff at Intermountain Railway Company. Now, to be clear, Marty no longer represents either entity. He's no longer employed by any company involved in the hobby. So with that out of the way, I'm pleased to welcome him to the Model Railway Show. Thanks for joining me, Marty.
2: Oh, glad to be here, Trevor. Thanks for having me.
0: Without getting into specifics, let's talk some theory. What are some of the issues that company would face if it wanted to build a ready-to-run high-volume plastic model in North America instead of China?
2: Let's start by defining what that means. We have to look at this from two different directions. One is the aspect of actually manufacturing the product and assembling it, and the other is doing the research and the preparation work to introduce the product to the marketplace. Virtually every North American train company right now does their research and R&D stuff on this side of the Pacific Ocean. A number of them do manufacture their plastic parts domestically, One company in particular manufactures everything soup to nuts domestically, and that, of course, is Katie. Most of the other companies, though, do their research and development here and do their manufacturing exclusively overseas, mostly in China.
0: And of course, we should note that it's not just model railroad companies that do that. Even a company like Apple, which is the most successful company in the world right now and the most valuable company in the world, you buy an iPad or an iPhone, it says designed in California, manufactured in China. So this isn't something that's specific to model trains, is it?
2: No, not at all. And of course, one thing we have to watch when we do these discussions about repatriating manufacturing back to this side of the Pacific, in any event, is the model railroad industry is not Apple. It's not the computer business. It's not the electronics industry. It's a very, very small part of a very small industry. You know, It's a small piece of the overall hobby industry. So it's a little different. The economic model is not going to work the same as it would be for something like televisions or radios or automobiles.
0: We know that Chinese production is getting more expensive. The workers are making more money than they used to, for example. And of course, that's a good thing. It's inevitable that Chinese products are going to cost more, isn't it?
2: As the workers in China, demand more money and demand a better standard of living, I think it's inevitable that the price of the goods is going to go up. We saw that even 10 years ago. We started seeing the per unit cost climb astronomically when we were having production assembled and decorated over in China. At Intermountain, what we did is we did all our research and development and did all our molding in the United States. The parts were then molded in the U.S., they were shipped over to China, and then they were decorated and assembled in China and shipped back to the U.S. as finished product. Now, the challenge, to go back to your first question, one of the challenges that a lot of manufacturers would face is, Quite frankly, a lot of the parts are not made to be put together all that easily. In Intermountain's case, a lot of those cars were made originally to be put together by a hobbyist. And if you have a hobbyist, he's willing to sit down and ream out a hole or drill out a hole if a part doesn't fit quite so well or maybe clean up a grab iron really carefully when he trims it off the runner. That's not necessarily the case if you have a row of people assembling cars in a factory. You have to train them how to do it. It takes time. It takes a certain skill set. And it takes a lot of people, quite honestly, to do it economically.
0: That's the sort of thing that as hobbyists, we actually look forward to doing that work. That's part of the satisfaction. As a manufacturer with a production line, the satisfaction of building the car isn't the point of the thing. The point of the thing is to create the product as efficiently and as economically as possible and get it to the people who want it.
2: Exactly. And when you're done, if there's a problem in the manufacturing aspect of things, in the assembly aspect or the decorating, you have a car that's upset your customer you have a car that you can't sell or that you have to give a refund on, and basically you have nothing you can do with it but grind it up.
0: Now, at the same time, you've mentioned KD makes all of its product in North America, and I think it's important to point out that there are a number of, let's call them domestic manufacturers or North American manufacturers. KD is a good example, but we can also buy laser-cut structure kits and resin rolling stock kits. We could buy everything we need to create a layout from North American manufacturers. The essentials like couplers and wheel sets are built here, track and rail are created here. So we're not talking about a total lack of product when we say, oh, if China stopped manufacturing tomorrow, it's not like we're dead in the water in terms of the hobby, are we?
2: Not at all. I think the main thing we'd probably be missing would be something like locomotives. An awful lot of locomotives are assembled offshore at this point. In fact, I don't know of anybody who's making locomotives domestically at this time. Obviously, there are cases where you can get conversion kits or resin shells to put on locomotive drives, et cetera. Quite honestly, Trevor, everybody has enough stuff in their basement, I think, that if they stop making stuff overseas tomorrow... I think we'd all have plenty of projects to work on for the next 20 years. At least, uh, certainly, I know why I would.
0: (laughs) And I would, too. I have a cabinet of shame full of products that I haven't built yet, and I really do have to get to them. What would this actually mean for the hobbyist, then? Would we be looking at fewer examples of ready-to-run and more kits on our layouts, or maybe have to look at building smaller, more manageable layouts because we're spending more time on each thing? I'm thinking, like, the way Beng King, who was covered in Model Railroader a lot, managed to keep himself entertained for, what, 30, 35 years on a layout that was 3 feet by 12 feet, something like that?
2: About that, yeah. Ben certainly got a lot of mileage out of that layout. I think the answer to your question is probably both of them is yes. All this ready-to-run stuff that we've had in the last 15 or 20 years really has done a couple of things. One thing, a good thing that it's done for the hobby is it's made it possible to build very large layouts relatively quickly, which is something that we weren't able to do before, and to have equipment that worked pretty well and take it out of the box and put it on the track and it works, and that's not a bad thing. Perhaps the problem or the downside to that is that after a while, everyone's layouts start looking the same. You know, we start seeing examples of, especially with things like ready-to-run structures. I can handle, I guess, ready-to-run locomotives and freight cars. But when I started seeing pre-weathered, pre-built structures, I thought, where's the creativity in that? But these things sell, so people, obviously, there's a demand for them. But I think overall, if production gets reduced in China, or more importantly, probably what's going to happen is not that production is going to get reduced or that the manufacturing is going to completely come back to the U.S. and Canada. What's probably going to happen is prices are going to go up significantly. You have to buy the plastic. Plastic has got a large component of oil. As you might know, oil is not cheap. The second problem you have is that you have to ship this stuff back and forth, ship parts to China and ship finished parts back. That's not inexpensive. Shipping costs are astronomically higher than they've ever been because of fuel costs, among other things. There's a lot of things that seem to be pointing to the prices are going to start inching up. And manufacturers are going to get very, very careful about how much of something they make and what exactly they make. And they already have. We've seen a radical increase in the amount of pre-ordering that goes on, producing two pre-orders as opposed to the old days when a manufacturer would just run 5000 of everything and know that eventually it would sell and he was willing to keep it on his warehouse shelves. Now, if he can't sell it in some period of time and it varies by the manufacturer, he doesn't want to make it because he doesn't want to be stuck with it because he needs that cash to pay for the next run of products so that he can make payroll.
0: And of course, as we have more selection, which is a good thing, there's more opportunities for us to spend our hobby budget. And I remember one manufacturer talking about the fact that if he made too much, people would buy the, let's say, the one or two cabooses that they needed from his run. But that was it. The next month, they were going to spend their money on the next new product that came out. They weren't going to come back to him and buy more cabooses. So he really does have to build to what he can expect to sell quickly and then take that money and get it into the R&D cycle to create the next product that's going to attract the customer.
2: Well, exactly. Because remember, the, the way the economic model works, it's very similar to the way the brass market worked years ago. When you order a production run from China, before it leaves China, you have to pay for the production run. So there is anywhere from, depending on how you're bringing it back to this side of the Pacific, four to six weeks to 10 to 12 weeks, that you're not going to be able to actually send that product out to your dealers and your customers and generate revenue from it.
0: The explosion over the past 20 years of affordable, beautiful ray to run has made it easier for people to build top quality layouts. But some would argue that that's come at a price, that we're losing some of those traditional hobby skills. What do you think of that argument?
2: I think it's true. I think what it really amounts to is we probably have more people building layouts now, and I'm not sure that if they were around, if we were talking the time period when you had to build everything yourself and when getting a car to roll down the track was an accomplishment or finishing a structure meant having to build all the windows yourself from scratch, I'm not sure a lot of those people that are building these layouts nowadays, I'm not sure they'd be in model railroading.
0: But I guess on the other hand, if the cost of ready-to-run becomes more expensive because of the cost of oil and the cost of higher wages in China and things like that, maybe we'll be more selective about what we purchase off the shelf. And with those smaller layouts, maybe devote more time to doing some things like scratch building our structures, or we'll buy the ready-to-run locomotive and we'll work on building our skills to build resin freight car kits, for example. Is that a possible solution to some of this issue?
2: Oh, I think so. A lot of layouts I see nowadays, you can tell when you walk in there where the modeler puts his emphasis. And I guess it's kind of a nice thing that the one thing you can buy wonderful products for, but you can't buy off the shelf is scenery. You can buy great stuff for scenery. We've seen an explosion in wonderful scenery products in the last five to 10 years. And ironically, that don't come from China, they come from Europe. And some of these products have been around for years. They just now, in the last few years, have kind of come into the forefront in North America. But it's really kind of neat to walk into somebody's layout and see how they've handled the scenery because that's the one place where your creativity does have to come through. Because as of right now, we can't go in and buy ready-made scenery for a Canadian national branch line in S scale, for example.
0: If only we could. One of the things about having that ready-to-run product, though, is that it has allowed people to spend more time doing things like learning the techniques to build scenery. So we are seeing more layouts that get done to a higher level of completion because they don't need to spend all their time tuning their locomotives and things like that.
2: I would agree. I think that's where the plus side of this is. The downside of this whole situation is the fact that it may discourage people from either getting involved in the hobby or it may have some people feel they have to leave the hobby because it's gotten, quote unquote, too expensive. And what it really means is that they just don't feel like they can buy enough stuff with their hobby budget then at that point, you just have to get more selective with what you buy. The ones who are going to really feel the pinch in this whole situation are going to be the manufacturers and the hobby shops.
0: We've already seen some manufacturers taking creative steps to address that and some hobby shops. Of course, a lot of hobby shops going out of business and things like that. I'm sure that everybody can agree that it's in our best interest to attract more people to the hobby. I know you and I would agree that having solid skills in things like building structures or building rolling stock from kits is one of the ways to do that. You get that satisfaction of doing something yourself. But for people who are new to the hobby, that presents a hurdle for them to get into the hobby. Of course, people have always done that, but now we're used to having people coming into the hobby because they've been able to buy stuff off the shelf. Is there anything that more experienced modelers should maybe be doing to help get new people into the hobby, recognizing that maybe the ready-to-run product isn't going to be as plentiful or as affordable as it has been in the past?
2: Well, I think one thing that is missing in this whole ready-to-run-or-nothing kind of approach that we seem to be taking is there's very little in the middle the old days of you had to learn how to put a basic freight car kit together are long gone. Now, I don't think you get a lot out of building a basic Atherton box car kit, for example. You do learn some basic skills and you can make some basic improvements to it without facing this ominous task of opening up a box of resin parts and not knowing what any of them are for. That's something that experienced modelers if they have somebody who they know who's interested. I'm a real big proponent both within our local NMRA division and region and within the local area here of kind of one-on-one mentoring of people. I don't believe in programs that grow the hobby. I think they're well-intentioned, but I've never seen any of them work. World's greatest hobby campaign, the Boy Scout merit badge thing. I think those are wonderful things, but I don't think that they necessarily increase the number of model railroaders out there. Where I see people becoming avid model railroaders is when a experienced modeler Kind of takes a less experienced modeler maybe under his wing and says, come on over. I'm going to lay some track. I'll show you how I lay track. I'll show you how to handle a turnout. I'm going to be weathering some freight cars. Come on by. I'll show you how to use the airbrush.
0: It's almost like doing a one-on-one clinic with someone. So the lesson here is if you see someone in the hobby who has shown an interest in that stuff, but maybe is hesitant, you need to embrace that and say, come on over and let's work on this together.
2: I think we're going to grow the hobby one modeler at a time.
0: What about some of the other things that we can do? I mean, we've got all this great media available to us. Now there's podcasting, YouTube, DVDs, books, online materials that could demonstrate techniques to new modelers. Is that something that we just need some champions to get in there and start producing some things to help some of the people who maybe can't find an experienced modeler in their neighborhood?
2: Oh, I think so. I think we have several people that are doing a great job on that. I'd like to see more people self-publishing books, I guess. I don't know that necessarily has to be a book, but some sort of self-published PDF, similar to the kind of stuff that Dave Frary does. And then, of course, there's a number of people that are making DVDs and stuff. The one thing you have to watch with that is that you want to make sure if you're going to do that, that at least it's clear, it's well-lit, it's presented in such a way that the camera's not waving all over the place. You want it to look good and want it to look professional. And you want people to come away from it going, wow, I got some useful information out of it, instead of coming away going, wow, that guy. It really has shaky hands.
0: I'm reminded of one really good example it was Evergreen. The Styrene people produced a book by Al Armitage on working oh, yeah. with its styrene products. Another example, more recent, is if you buy anything from Fast Tracks from Tim Warris, there's always a DVD included showing how to build the turnouts using the fixtures and stuff like that. I think those are two really good examples of manufacturers coming up with the support materials around their products to show people, here's ways that you can use the stuff. What do you think of that as a way to sort of help bridge that? Maybe have in-depth construction articles or demonstrations on DVD or manufacturers that create basic materials or detail parts offering plans and bills of materials and things like that. Is that something that maybe we're missing in the hobby and opportunity for picking up some of that slack?
2: I don't know. I know, for example, Woodland Scenics does an outstanding job at that kind of stuff, and they have for years. I mean, they're... Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a convention with the Woodland Scenics Traveling Roadshow, but they do a great job at how to build scenery and use their products to build scenery. And I can think of a couple other examples of manufacturers that have tied in information products to their manufactured products. I guess uh, Scale Models does DVDs on how to build structure kits, and Doug Fiscali sells structure kits. So I think there's people doing it. I'm not sure how much... A- company that manufactures cars and locomotives can do that. Now that I've said that, I realize that, you know, Atlas for many, many years did a series of books long before we had the internet and everything else. Atlas track planning books were a wonderful way to get started in the hobby. In fact, my very first layout was from an Atlas track planning book.
0: Mine was too. Uh, And I still have that book.
2: Yeah. And I think that was a great approach. And and obviously they did it to sell track. You know, you're not going to find Bachman track listed in the Atlas track planning book, but that's okay. I mean, that's whoever pays the freight gets to make the rules. I think that's a great... Great idea. I think it would be wonderful to see some of these manufacturers do maybe a DVD or something on how to weather their freight cars or how to maybe do some additional detailing on it. The risk you run there, of course, is if you start talking about changes to make to the product, then it calls into question the value or the validity of the base product. So that would be my concern there. I mean, why should I do a DVD on how to improve my 1937 boxcar when you just paid $28 for that? Isn't that already great as it is? And so that would be the question you'd run into.
0: I guess I was thinking more along the lines of some of the manufacturers not in the mass production game sort of stepping in to fill maybe that void people can't buy as much product off the shelf because their hobby budget doesn't extend that far, then this is an opportunity for some of those other manufacturers to say, we have a rolling stock kit. You have to build it, but here's a DVD that sort of explains how to do that or some of the best practices, that sort of thing.
2: Like Al Westerfield's old, uh, here's how I build a resin freight car DVD.
0: Yeah. And of course, people do this at clinics at RPM meets and things. They're talking about working with their kits. I know some of the people like Jerry Cornwell from Mount Albert Scale Lumber. He has a whole, clinic that he does at NMRA conventions on working with wood. It also seems like this is an opportunity for custom builders. If fewer choices can be found ready to run, yet people still want to build those large layouts, there's certain argument here you could say, well, you don't have time to do all the structures. Maybe pick the structures that you really want to do. You know, Pick that specific railroad station and the things that go in the background, the, the town sites and stuff, I could build those for you. Or you really like to build boxcars, but you also need tank cars. I can build those tank cars out of resin kits for you. Is that maybe an opportunity for more modelers to turn pro and help those who have the money but no time to fill their layouts, do you think?
2: Oh, I think so. And I think naturally the economy being the way it is and job situation, I think people you know tend to look towards their hobby as a way to augment or to maybe perhaps even replace their income. Now they might do it as a temporary thing and it turns out to be such a great approach for them that they stick with it and stay with that. I know a number of model railroad manufacturers nowadays that started as a temporary thing because that individual's out of work and needed to do something to make a few dollars and they found a niche and they've stuck with it. There's certainly places where people, if they have a focus and they have a particular skill set and a particular ability, comes immediately to mind is building resin freight cars, uh, Elgin Car Shops, you know, Pierre Oliver. I think that's a very good example of somebody who's taken a very focused aspect of the hobby, a product that he's very familiar with, and it's something that it's easy to ship. It's not difficult to deal with. There's a whole bunch of pluses to doing that. Getting a layout custom built is a completely different animal. I'm not sure we're going to see more of that, but I think having people build elements of layouts for other people, or saying, "Hey, I can build structure kits, or I can build freight cars, or I can put decoders and locomotives," I think there's a lot of that going on.
0: And that may be a way for people who still have the means to do large layouts. But if we didn't have this choice of ray to run stuff, they'd still be able to get what they wanted. So really, there isn't a huge message of doom and gloom here, is there?
2: I don't think so at all. No, I think the hobby will change. It will evolve. But you know, the hobby ten years ago wasn't the the same. The hobby 20 years ago wasn't the same, but it's still a great hobby, and it's still a great way to spend time and exercise your creativity, and I firmly believe that.
0: Let's end on a personal note here. You're working on a large layout. It's based on the central Vermont, and we'll have a link on the themodelrailwayshow.com to your blog so people can see what you're doing. It is a large layout, though. It does demand a fair amount of equipment, a fair amount of scenery, a fair amount of structures. If the price of ready-to-run rolling stock quadrupled, as one manufacturer suggested, how would that change your hobby and your layout?
2: What would probably change is the quantity of items that I purchased would probably be reduced. I don't think I'd necessarily spend any more on model railroading. I think I'd probably just buy one quarter of the amount of stuff. That said, I have enough stuff in this basement already to probably populate the layout five times over. So I'm not hurting for inventory. One of the things that building a large layout has taught me is that there's some cases where, like we just said a minute ago, you got to solve the problem the old-fashioned way or the American way, and that's just throw money at it. So I've hired out some tasks that were ones that I just didn't want to do anymore, one of the examples I'll give you is that one of the things we did at Intermountain is have Tichy freight cars done, assembled, and decorated And a deal we had with Don Titchy. And I don't think I've assembled a Titchy freight car since then. I know how to build a Tichy hopper car or a Titchy box car. I don't need to prove to myself that I know how to do it. And I'd much rather have it already done and assembled and painted and ready to put on the layout. So that's one area where I've just definitely taken advantage of the ready-to-run stuff.
0: <laughs> and I think it's one of those cases where you say, well, that's a really interesting car. I'd like to build one. One or two of those, but if you need 20 or 30 of them for a layout, then you might want to have someone else do all that repetitive work,
2: right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly
0: it. It also sounds like it wouldn't actually be a bad thing for you if less product was available. It would It would just be a different thing, wouldn't it? And as you say, it would encourage you to get at the warehouse in the basement under the layout and start building some of the kits you already have.
2: Oh, exactly. Well, you know, keep in mind, Trevor, too, uh, Central Vermont is not exactly Union Pacific or Penzi. It's not the first railroad that everybody makes something says gosh we got to do a central vermont prototype i wish that they would but they don't so it's pretty much been a hunt and peck existence for central vermont modelers anyway all along
0: just to take that back to an earlier thought we were talking about how layouts with a lot of ready-to-run product on them tend to start looking the same you actually get an advantage out of this by picking an unusual prototype like the central vermont in that you're going to be forced to do a layout that doesn't look like everybody else's aren't you
2: exactly and that's one of the advantages to it and that's One of the reasons, you know, for a number of years I was doing a true freelance railroad. And what I started finding was it got way too easy to go through the Walters catalog or through Model Railroader and go, yeah, that's what the station at that town could look like, and that's what the factory at that town could look like. And I was getting dangerously close to checkbook modeling, and that's not what I wanted to see in the basement. I wanted to see the Central Vermont Railway. So I made some changes and have been working on that pretty diligently.
0: Excellent. Well, listen, Marty, it's been great having you here to share your thoughts on this issue. It's a difficult one for many people to get their head around, and I hope that we've given them a bit of extra thought on that. It's also, I think, an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. So it's great to hear a a number of perspectives on it. Thanks for joining me today on the Model Railway Show to talk about it.
2: Thanks again for having me, Trevor. I'm not sure we solved any of the world's problems, but maybe we gave some people some things to think about. I hope so.
1: Thanks, guys. Say, Trevor, one's view of a hobby can certainly shift when it moves from avocation to vocation, can't it? It certainly can. You
0: know, I really have respect for people who take that leap from being a hobbyist to being a manufacturer. You get a whole new set of issues that you have to deal with. Anyone who complains and says, well, why doesn't a manufacturer make this or make that, they should probably go ahead and try to make it
1: themselves as a commercial product and see how they feel about it afterwards and then be very happy about returning to their basement and maybe scratch-building the thing instead of waiting
0: well, yes. And I was going to say, you know, one thing that occurred to me when we were preparing for this show is that you and I are both working in S-Scale right now. In fact, I'm
1: celebrating one year of working on the line. Congratulations. Thank two congratulations. celebrations, actually, because two years back from this show, we started the show. That's right. You yes. started the show and welcome to your board. And
0: of course, our buddies, Otto, David and Chris. But yes, it has been two years since we've done the model railway show. But what I was going to say about S-Scale is we're sort of forced to do a lot of things by ourselves anyway. There isn't a lot of ready to run available. Air.
1: You don't walk into the local hobby shop and get it, that's for sure. So some of these issues don't affect us as much. We'll simply shrug and we'll either build it or do without it. But I think newbies to the hobby and those that are in the big supply scales like HO, where there's plentiful stuff, they feel it more perhaps when they yes. can't get what they want. And I think the other issue that we have to
0: think about as modelers is that more experienced modelers may say, well, that's fine. I've got everything in my basement. It's about time I start building the stuff in the home hobby mm-hmm. shop. Or they say, that's fine. I can scratch build it. But if we want to... To attract more people into the hobby. The people who are just getting into model railroading, it's a steep learning curve yes. to learn to scratch
1: build things. And not just increasing the supply, maintaining what we have so that they can get that foot in and get started. Speaking of getting started in this hobby, uh, this is a quick plug for a show coming up. Uh, Charlie Gets, the president of the NMRA, is going to be talking uh, about an exciting new museum project to introduce people to model railroading. Yes. That's a couple of shows up the pike. I, yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. Well, just a reminder, wherever you live, you'll find the Model Railway Show in the domestic aisle. And you can pick the
0: packaging that suits your needs Facebook, iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net. Heck, you can even click directly onto our show from our homepage. Next up, it's Jim's turn as he chats with the man whose magazine editorial launched us into today's
1: show. Although not an O Scaler myself, I enjoy reading O Scale Trains magazine for its thought provoking ideas and philosophies. Editor Joe Gianavario is a thinking hobbyist editor. In his July-August 2012 edition, a considerable portion of Joe's observations editorial page is dedicated to the notion that some of the U.S. model train manufacturers could move at least some of their production from the fickle factories of China back to North American shores. Joe says he'd be willing to pay higher prices for trains made in North America to support manufacturing and create jobs. The question that has to be asked, and we'll get around to it, is would others? Model trains to us are fun, but for manufacturers, they're a very serious game. What company with a board of directors and possibly shareholders to satisfy would stick its neck out? In a dog-eat-dog business world, can patriotism ever trump pragmatism? Joe, you were our very first interview on our very first show two years ago. Welcome back. Well, thank you. I am pleased to be back. Right off the top, you have nothing against foreign-made goods, do you?
3: Absolutely not. I own lots of imported goods, both railroad and non-railroads. I just discovered that my 2011 Dodge was made in Canada.
1: Well, that's so, all free trade. Yes. <laughs> we enjoy a wider range of affordable goods, model railroad and otherwise, than at any previous time in our history. But I think there's a part of many of us that wishes those goods were made a lot closer to home, both for supply chain security and to keep the jobs where we live. You would agree with that, wouldn't you?
3: I would absolutely agree. I think the health of the hobby depends on people with disposable income. So if you move jobs overseas without replacing them with something better here, then you have the situation that we're in now where you have high unemployment. People don't have disposable income and they're not buying as many trains as they would be if they had more disposable income.
1: Creates a downward spiral. What was the catalyst for your column? Two things.
3: There's an ad that runs in several car magazines that I read and a newsletter by a model railroad manufacturer that detailed their issues and problems with
1: Chinese production. Start with the model railroad manufacturer. What was his lament?
3: There was a huge shakeup about two years ago in China where a smaller manufacturer was purchased by a larger manufacturer and then they announced to a lot of... small importers over here in the US we're not going to be building for you anymore That just caused a panic. People were stuck with no production capabilities. They had promised product, and now they weren't going to get it. Then they had to get their molds back, try to find other manufacturers, and it was total chaos for about two years.
1: Which we're only just starting to come out of now. And when you say small manufacturers, some of these are small manufacturers maybe when you look at them from a global outlook, but they were big suppliers to the hobby, for example, weren't they?
3: Atlas was one of the manufacturers manufacturers that had to go over to China and recover something like five thousand pieces of tooling from this huge manufacturer over there and then go find other places to get their materials made. So we were in a situation that is just now being resolved where there's no track in O scale for about a year.
1: Same thing in S scale. Yes. As a magazine editor, have you been privy to the discussions of this dilemma within the industry? I wonder if this has been a kick in the pants for them and some of them are actually thinking about how to get things closer to home.
3: Actually, no, I haven't had any conversations with any of the manufacturers. Most of them have played it close to their chest, although Tom Hadrick from Atlas did send out a newsletter to all of their distributors, which I got to see, and it detailed some of the issues that they've been going through with their tooling. But I haven't actually had any
1: personal conversations with anyone. How would they extract themselves from this? You look at the cost of labor in China and the different here, and I think that was the nub of the editorial that got you going, the cost of complex train models would just go too high for the average model railroad consumer.
3: That's what's starting to happen and already has happened. For example, in Atlas's case, their turnouts are now close to $100 a piece.
1: Oh, these are Chinese-made turnouts.
3: Chinese-made turnouts. So you're saying
1: the cost of labor in China is now actually starting to impact.
3: It's not just cost of labor, it's also materials. Certain strategic materials, the prices have increased 300 percent. Anything that has a magnet in it for example, like a motor, is going to end up costing more money. So it's not just labor, but material costs. Plus, China's having problems right now with energy costs, and that all ripples down the chain.
1: I think this is kind of a sociological question. Next, well, you and I and a lot of others decry the exporting of jobs for cheaper consumer goods, do you really think the larger general public in the U.S. and Canada actually has the will to spend more or settle for less to keep their neighbors and themselves and jobs?
3: It's a complicated issue. And there's always the desire to pay less for more But I think you end up with a false economy So we have to
1: realize the party's over, in other words
3: Yeah, I'm talking about in general now General goods, not model railroad goods But in general goods coming from China What I've seen is a lack of quality So they don't last as long And I'm talking about just simple things like socks We buy socks at Target. They don't last more than two months before they start to wear out. These are socks that are made in China. My daughter is a designer. She used to work for a company that made athletic-type footwear. So my wife and I used to get athletic shoes pretty cheap. My wife ordered a pair of shoes through my daughter. They come in. The shoes are two different colors. (laughs) I asked my daughter why. She said because she can't get the Chinese to understand that you have to make one pair of shoes from the same piece of leather. What do you want to pay for? Do you want to pay for better quality stuff? then let's do some of the manufacturing here and pay the people to do better jobs.
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of the domestic manufacturers would be happy not to have to take plane flights to China. You cited a U.S. producer of rubber car mats, for example. Tell us a bit about that.
3: The company's called McNeil Automotive Products, and they sell their items under the name WeatherTech. They make a lot more than just car mats. They have 18 different products. They do injection molding. They do CAD-CAM design. They do stereolithography, which is basically 3D printing. This is a pretty advanced manufacturing company, and he takes a two-page ad in all these car magazines, two full pages, to explain his philosophy for bringing all the manufacturing of their products back to the United States. And it's not just simply manufacturing his products here. He buys machines that are made in the U.S. He buys materials that are manufactured in the U.S. So this is a guy that really backs up his philosophy his words with his actions and it just impressed the hell out of me that somebody would be willing to put their money where their mouth is put their business on the line and do something positive and i thought well why couldn't manufacturers of trains do the same thing and in fact Some of them have, at least one of them has. Not long ago in the Philadelphia paper, about a year ago in the Philadelphia paper, was an article about an injection molding company in Northeast Philadelphia that was going to be manufacturing some trains. And it turns out the people who are doing this is Lionel. And I just saw an advertisement by Lionel about this special line of boxcars that are being manufactured in the United States. And I think that's pretty neat.
1: Well, I say good on Lionel and good on AutoTech. Let's put you in the manufacturer's shoes. If you were a large maker of injection-molded freight cars, for example, what strategies do you think you might have to employ to move at least some production back here? And what measures might you employ to offset higher labor costs without affecting quality? Would it be a hard sell for you?
3: Not for me. I mean, if it was my business, I just recently told somebody that I occasionally buy lottery tickets. So when I hit the lottery, I'm going to fail. But if I were a manufacturer, I think I might look at some limited run items. I might deconstruct some of my ready-to-run things into kits so that I could bring production back here because it's good for the economy as a whole. I think manufacturers have to take a look at their business model and decide, is it just the bottom line that is important, or do manufacturers need to take a little bit more pride in the stuff that they're making and selling and bite the bullet, take a little bit less profit, but do something positive, not just for model railroading, but for the economy as a whole, and do some manufacturing back here.
1: Don't do it cold turkey, just start by dipping your toe in the water. Yeah. What do modelers have to do? Do we have any contribution to make to this?
3: I think if manufacturers were aware that people like me and you might be willing to pay more for domestic production, that they might take a chance and do something about it.
1: In closing, Joe, maybe modelers should be just a little less acquisitive and settle a little more for quality rather than quantity. Fascinating conversation, Joe. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Joe Gionaverio, the editor of O-Scale Trains magazine. <laughs> Thanks, Joe, and thanks, Jim. So what do we take away from today's two points of view? I think what I take away is it's not the cost of getting the pieces made. It's the cost of getting them put together that determines to a very large degree where your production is going to be based. If you're KD, for example, and you're assembling a small coupler assembly, yes, by all means, keep it at home, and they're proud that they manufacture in North America. If you're someone like Jason Schron with his amazingly complex new passenger train, I think he stated that... That the additional cost of labor could as much as quadruple the price of those cars, which makes it totally unrealistic for him to try and do it here.
0: And of course, we have to keep in mind that it is a hobby and how many modelers would be willing to build a more modest empire at a more expensive cost for each part. I think that if the costs do go up, we're going to see a lot fewer people in the hobby. Mm -hmm. Of course, it is a hobby. So in one sense, if there's fewer people in it, but they're more committed, then it's not like we're designing firefighting equipment. Nobody dies.
1: But, you know, it's still, if you want to build that large empire empire, then cost is important because you're going to be collecting a lot of equipment. So, yes. Yeah.
0: Well, if you're looking for more ideas for your large empire or your small empire, you should check out our Flickr Gallery. You'll find a link to that on the themodelrailwayshow.com and of course we remind you
1: that the themodelrailwayshow.com has interesting links
0: related to the guests on all of our shows.
1: Well, time to shut the doors to the factory. In closing, we'd like to let you know that certain components of this show were assembled in Waynefleet where labor is cheaper than in Toronto. Where the heck is Waynefleet? Well, have to Google it. Uh, Who do we have next time, Trevor? Well, next time out, we have Charlie Getz,
0: the president of the National Model Railroad Association, and Dave Arnovitz, a professional
1: railroader who uses a model railroad as a training tool. Thanks, as always, to Chris Abbott for the technical help, webmaster Otto Vondrack, and Dave Woodhead, creator of our catchy theme music. Till next time, for Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show.